0: Or you guys can turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. So Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. You've probably sung that song more times than you can count in your life. But do, do you know the story of Amazing Grace? you know the story behind it? It was written by a guy named John Newton, this guy, in 1779. And if you would have known John as a young man, he would have been the last man on earth you would expect to write a hymn that you would sing in church. At 11, John went to sea with his dad. He became a sailor and he quickly developed a reputation for insubordination and vulgarity. On one particular boat, he tried to desert and so they flogged him. On another boat, he came up with catchy, obscene songs about the captain and taught it to all the other sailors. So he got thrown in the brig. On yet another boat, he actually was called by the captain, one of the most vulgar men he had ever met. And that's saying something for a guy who lives among sailors. I mean, they all cuss. And yet John had a reputation as an incredibly vulgar man. He said of himself during that age of his life, I sinned with a high hand. And I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. But vulgarity and insubordination, those are nothing compared to what John did in the last nine years of his career as a sailor. He entered the slave trade willingly. It was his choice. And he became a captain of a slave ship. And he led three voyages from Africa to the sugar plantations full of slaves, men and women, both chained to one another for up to nine months, nine months at a time. He witnessed and approved of and profited from horrific evil. John Newton wasn't a good man. He wasn't even a decent man. No, John Newton was an evil man. Slave traders, that rakes up there with Nazis when it comes to pure evil. And yet that's exactly the kind of man that God wanted to reach in grace. God loved John Newton, even when John Newton was a slave trader. And so God orchestrated a series of near-death experiences for John. They broke him and brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. And then in grace, God's spirit began to transform him. Gradually, he turned from sin. He exited the slave trade. He actually became a pastor, a gifted pastor and hymn writer, and then dedicated the latter years of his life to abolition, to ending slavery. John Newton's story is a story of of complete transformation, 180 degree turn, and this guy's life from slave trader to faithful pastor and servant of God. He said of himself towards the end of his life, I am not the man I ought to be, and I'm not the man I wish to be, and I am not the man I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. The grace of God reached down and grabbed hold of John Newton, the slave trader, the sinner, the wicked, evil, vulgar man and redeemed him and transformed him. And as you hear the the words of amazing grace, what you realize is that John's story is really not about John. John Newton is not the hero of his story. It's about God. God is the hero of his story. It's about God's limitless grace to a wicked and evil man. That's the story of John Newton. That's also the story of the book of Jonah. You've been in Jonah for a couple weeks now. You probably realize the book of Jonah is not about Jonah and it's not about Nineveh. Who is it about? It's about God. It's about the limitless grace of God. The grace of God extended to people who utterly do not deserve it. To Jonah and to Nineveh. Chapter three is particularly about that. This is the pinnacle of God's grace. Here in chapter three, God is going to extend his limitless grace both to Jonah, one of his own people, a believer, and to the Ninevites who weren't his people. So look at chapter three. The chapter begins with God's limitless grace to Jonah, to one of his own, to a believer. God gives Jonah a second chance. Look with me starting in verse one. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now, if you'll recall, this is about exactly the same job that God gave Jonah back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 2, he told Jonah, Go to Nineveh and preach what I tell you. Well, how did Jonah do with that job? He failed. He failed and not by a little bit. He didn't miss Nineveh by a few miles. No, he missed it because he went the completely opposite direction. He failed utterly and not by accident. It wasn't a navigation error. No, it was on purpose. He was rebelling against God. He was an open rebellion, rejection of God's plan. He marches the other way. Jonah only comes to repentance when he's dying. When he is sinking, drowning in the ocean that he finally calls out to God and God forgives him. And in chapter three, God gives him a second chance. So I want to ask you, put yourself in God's shoes for a moment. Imagine that you are God at the beginning of chapter three and Jonah has done what Jonah did. And he calls out to you and repents. What would you give Jonah? Jonah. What would you do for Jonah if you were in God's shoes? If it was me, if I was in God's shoes, then uh, I guess I would forgive the guy because God does that a lot. So forgive the guy, but then I would fire him. I would give Jonah a pink slip. Prophet thing, man, you're done, Jonah. You, you blew it completely. Prophet is over for you, so why don't you go try your hand at farming or shepherding because I'm done with you. Or, or maybe if I didn't want to fire him, maybe I would at least have demoted him to the minor leagues. Jonah, you really were not ready for a Nineveh level assignment. I can see that now. Okay, we're good. I'm going to boot you down to the JV team and let's see how you do in in an easier profit role. I would certainly not have given Jonah a second chance at such a significant mission. And yet God does. God gives Jonah a second chance. He gives him the exact same mission. God doesn't put him on probation. He doesn't bench Jonah. He puts Jonah back on the field and gives him the ball. Why? Why would God give Jonah a second chance? It's not because Jonah deserved it. God doesn't owe Jonah anything. Jonah doesn't deserve anything good from God. And it's not because God needed Jonah. Sometimes you do that. If you own a a company, you have an employee who's not doing well, but you can't fire him because you really need the guy. God's not like that. God is God. He's infinite. He doesn't need anybody. In fact, we know that at this time, he had two other prophets living at the same time, Hosea and Amos, who were both more faithful than Jonah. God could have sent them. So why does God give Jonah a second chance? Not because he owes it to Jonah, not because he needs Jonah. He gives him a second chance because that's grace. And God loves grace. Grace means getting something good you don't deserve. Jonah didn't deserve a second chance. He didn't deserve anything from God. And yet in grace, God gives him a second chance because that's what God loves to do. We have a God who loves to give grace to his people, who loves to give us second chances when we fall on our faces. Puts it this way in the book of Isaiah therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. Do you notice the emotional language here? God isn't willing to show you grace. No, he longs to show you grace. What Isaiah is saying is grace isn't something that God is willing to give you. It's something that he's passionate to give. God loves to extend grace to his people. It thrills God. When we turn from sin and turn back to him, he is rejoicing. He is partying because he loves to extend us grace. That's what God does. He gives second chances to his people when we blow it. He loves to give us grace. He's doing it throughout the Bible. It's not just Jonah. Giving second chances is actually a pattern with God. If you study scripture, you will see God gives second chances to his people when they blow it over and over again. God gives second chances to guys who commit apostasy like Peter. A believer who denied Jesus publicly three times. That's big. On the list of sins as we as humans rank them, apostasy. Man, top of the list. Peter does it three times and yet God extends him a second chance. Jesus forgives him and promotes Peter to the leader of the early church. So God gives second chances to believers who commit apostasy. He gives second chances to believers who surrender to depression. Think about Elijah. The guy hears bad news and he runs off to the desert and he hides in a cave and he prays, God, kill me. The guy is suicidal. He just wants to die. And yet God redeems him and restores him and calls him to even greater ministry than he had in the past. God gives second chances to believers who sleep with prostitutes. That's Samson. Guy given supernatural strength. He trades it for one night of passion. He gets captured by the Philistines. Hair is cut short. He's thrown into prison. And then what happens? God grows his hair back. The guy repents and God gives him strength and Samson actually wins his greatest victory after his failure. God gives second chances to believers who abandon their ministries. Not just Jonah who ran to Tarshish, but Mark, the guy who wrote Mark in your Bible, John Mark, when he was a young man, a believer, he went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But then it got hard. It got difficult and he got homesick. And so he ran away. He ran home and abandoned them. And then amazingly later in his life, God restores John Mark and calls him to such influential ministry that he ends up writing one of the books in your Bible. That's how significant this guy ends up being. Because God loves to give us second chances. When we turn from sin, he offers us another chance to serve him and advance his kingdom on earth. And actually, when you read it scripturally, you realize it's not just second chances. God loves to give us third and fourth and fifth and 900th chances to return and serve him. Think about Abraham. If you've studied Abraham's life, we tend to think of him as very faithful. He was at the end of his life, but for most of his life, he wasn't. He blew it. Over and over again, three major failures in Abraham's life. They're recorded in Genesis where he gave into fear and rebelled against God. Major failures, not minor things, big things. And yet God gave him chance after chance after chance, restored him, raised him up and called him to great service. So that Abraham became one of the one of those remarkable models of radical faith by the end of his life. Our God is a God of limitless grace. He gives his people second chances, third chances, fourth chances, 999th chances to serve him. So what does that mean for you? If you're one of God's people, if you're here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus Christ, what that means for you is that God is not done with you yet. No matter what you have done in this life, there is no sin you could have committed, no unfaithfulness you could have committed that would disqualify you from serving God. Now, you may have fallen into some sin that closes the door to particular ministries, particular leadership positions, but that means God's opening new doorways to you. New doorways to serve him. New opportunities to advance his kingdom on earth. God's grace to you is limitless. By definition, that means you cannot exhaust it. You don't fall at some point into sin and all of a sudden God says your tank of grace is done. No, God's tank of grace is infinite. As long as you are still breathing, there is still hope for you to serve the Lord and advance his kingdom on earth. But wait, you say, Blake, you don't understand. You don't know what I've done. I've done something awful, maybe multiple times. I'm ashamed of it. God could never use a person like me. Well, did you sleep with some guy's wife and then have him murdered to cover it up? because that's what David did. And then when David repented, God forgave him and restored him as king over Israel. Now, David did have some painful consequences to live through because sin always brings pain. You can't escape that. And yet God was not done with David. He gave David a second chance. And if he can give a guy like that a second chance, he can give you a second chance. There is always opportunity to serve God in significant ways in this life. He's not done with you until you are in the grave. So if you have fallen in sin, if you are a believer who has been tripped up, you've fallen in sin, you are deep in the pit of sin, my encouragement for you this morning, three things that I want you to do. Number one, confess your sin. That's what Jonah did in chapter two. Tell God, yep, God, I blew it. This was sin. This is serious. I confess that to you. Confess your sin. Number two, turn from your sin. Turn away from it. Now, probably you're going to need help. Sin is awfully attractive and it can be incredibly addictive. So you may need a friend in your life who will pray for you and hold you accountable. You may need help even more than that. You you may need help to overcome an addiction. If that's the case, I encourage you to check out our Celebrate Recovery ministry here at Grace Bible Church. It meets at the Southwood campuses on Tuesday evenings. We would love to have you come out and get help to turn away from that addictive sin in your life. So confess your sin and turn from it. And then number three, remember that as you turn from sin, God wants to call you back into service. God is not done with you yet. He is extending you a second chance or a third chance or a 900th chance to serve him in significant ways. God's grace is limitless. You can't use it up. It's always there for you. He's not done with you. He wants to call you out of your sin, restore you, heal you, and use you to make a lasting difference on this planet for Jesus Christ. God's grace to his people is limitless. That's the first thing that we see in Jonah chapter three, as he extends limitless grace to his prophet, to Jonah. But God's limitless grace is not just for his people, for us. The rest of the chapter is about God's limitless grace to Nineveh, to the city of Nineveh. Let's set the scene, if you will look with me, starting in verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. So Jonah finally obeys and goes to Nineveh and he begins to proclaim this message. We're told that Nineveh was a a great city, a, a city that required three days. Literally in Hebrew, it's a a three-day city. And what that means is that Nineveh was so large that if you wanted to proclaim a message that everyone in Nineveh would hear, it took three days. You had to preach three days. You would go from suburb to suburb of the ancient city of Nineveh for three full days before the city would have as a whole heard your message. So Jonah goes one day's walk into the city of Nineveh and he begins to proclaim this really simple message, just eight words. That's all he says, just eight words. And what happens? What happens? Well, look with me starting in the next verse. Verse five. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Jonah goes one day into the city and begins to proclaim this simple prophecy, just eight words, uh, one day in on, on a planned trip of three days. It's gonna be a three day long ministry, but it gets cut short, Right? All we hear about is Jonah's first day. Why? Because the Ninevites beat him to the punch. All it takes is one day. They begin to hear this message and they begin to spread it from person to person so that on the very first day, the entire city of Nineveh catches the flame of revival. The entire city from one end to the other hears this prophecy and gets down on their knees. They all hear it. They all respond to it. And as a whole, the entire city believes They all believe in God. Now, I need to clarify something at this point so that you understand what's going on in Jonah 3. When it says they believe in God, in Hebrew, you need to know that when it says God, it's not Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of Israel's God, the one true God, the great and only God, the God we believe in. The Ninevites were pantheists, meaning they believed in lots of gods. They probably still believed in lots of gods after this. The word in Hebrew is Elohim. And Elohim is the generic word for God. It just means a great God. What the Ninevites believed is that a great God was about to show up. A great God who you should fear was angry with them and about to judge them. So chapter three of of Jonah is not about individual Ninevites placing their faith in God for salvation. That's, That's not what's going on here. They're not placing their faith in Yahweh so that they spend eternity with him. Now, will some of the Ninevites in this chapter be in heaven? Maybe, maybe some of them heard these eight words from Jonah and thought, man, I should talk more to this guy. Then they talk to him and find out that this God is the actual only God named Yahweh, the God of Israel. Maybe they came to place their faith in that God. Maybe we will see some of these Ninevites in heaven, but that's not what Jonah is about. It's not about individual Ninevites placing their faith in the God of Israel. It's about the city as a whole waking up one day and realizing that a great God was angry with them and about to show up in judgment. The city as a whole believes that message from Jonah's mouth and it terrifies them. They are scared senseless. They are fearful. They know our time has come and that fear motivates them to do the only reasonable thing. They follow up their belief with repentance. The the city of Nineveh repents before God. Now, what does that mean? I know Brian has begun to unfold this idea of repentance to you. Let me just put this together. What we see in chapter three teaches us a lot. About the idea of biblical repentance. Repent in the Bible means, very simply, to turn from something bad to something good in order to escape God's punishment. Actually, in Hebrew and Greek, repent just means to turn around, to turn from one thing to its opposite. But in the Bible, the basic spiritual idea is you turn from something bad towards something good to escape God's punishment in your life. Now, who in the Bible is called to repent? Who's repentance for? Well, it varies. Passage to passage, it varies. Sometimes it's believers who need to repent. Sometimes it's unbelievers. Sometimes it's both. And what do they need to repent of? What do they need to turn away from? Well, that varies as well. Sometimes it's a sinful behavior. Like Acts chapter 17, Paul calls the Athenians to repent of their idolatry. Stop worshiping idols. In Acts chapter 2, Peter calls the Jews to repent of a wrong belief. There, they had believed that Jesus was a criminal who deserved crucifixion. They needed to repent of that, to believe, to change their minds and embrace him as the son of God who deserved their worship. So repentance means various things in various places. Here in chapter three of the book of Jonah, it is a message given to unbelievers challenging them to turn from their sinful behavior. They need to recognize that they have done wrong things, particularly violence. That's the big thing that the city of Nineveh is condemned over. They need to repent of their violent ways. Now, how does it play out? What do they do to repent? Well, as you read the chapter, what we just read, you see that repentance for the Ninevites included three things, three, three steps. First of all, they had to recognize their sin. That's what the king does in verse eight. He calls out, he identifies their sin. Now, there's something fascinating here. You may have noticed in Jonah's prophecy... Did you notice that he never points out their sin? Jonah doesn't tell him what they'd done wrong because he didn't need to. They knew. People know. We have a conscience. God gave us a conscience. We know what we've done wrong. They knew. They had committed immorality and violence. They they identify their sin. They admit to God, yes, we have sinned. So that's the first step of repentance. You identify your sin. You recognize it, but it doesn't end there. Second, you express sorrow for it. Biblical repentance is not just about recognizing sin. It's not just enough to to recognize the fact that I have sinned. Repentance isn't just an intellectual idea. It's an emotion. I must not just recognize my sin. I must feel sorrow for it. I must grieve over it. Repentance means that I feel the same way about my sin that God does. God hates it. God is sorrowful over it. We must be sorrowful over it. Now, in the ancient world, you express that sorrow by doing the two things they do. Number one, you fast. You give up food and water. That is how they expressed extreme sorrow in the ancient world. Second, you take off your nice clothes and you put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was uh, the coarsest of all cloth. It was made of goat's hair. It's what poor people and prisoners wore in the ancient world. When you wanted to express grief, you put on that kind of clothing. Prisoner's garb to show the extent of your sorrow. Now in our day and age, fasting and sackcloth aren't really how we show repentance, but for us as well, repentance requires sorrow. Not enough to just recognize your sin, you must grieve over it. So that's the second step of their repentance. The third is they commit to turn away from it. That's what the king commands them. In verse eight, let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. King is including himself here. We must turn away from our sin. Repentance always includes that. You have to turn away from whatever the bad thing is. For them, violence. They had to commit to turn away from their violent behavior. So their repentance, it includes recognition of sin, sorrow for sin, and a commitment to stop sinning. I want you to notice a couple more things about their repentance. Number one, it extended all the way to their animals. Did you notice that was kind of a funny thing? They clothed their animals in sackcloth. I'll I'll admit it's never occurred to me that when I sin, I should take my cat and clothe her in sackcloth and deny her from food and water. Uh, That would seem ridiculous to me. What are they doing with the animals? Well, they're trying to demonstrate to whoever this great God is the depth of their repentance, their seriousness over sin. They withhold nothing from him, everything they give to him. It's the first thing to note. Second thing to note, uh, verse nine, did you notice what motivated their repentance? Why did they repent? Out of hope. Who knows? Maybe this great God who we don't know much about, maybe he will relent. Their repentance was motivated by hope that maybe this great God would give them a second chance. And sure enough, he does. Look at verse 10. When God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. God extends grace to Nineveh by sparing them after they repent. He relents from the plan. He literally, he, he changes his mind about the harm that he was going to do to them. He gives them a second chance. He treats them just like Jonah. He doesn't give them what they deserve. He gives them grace. Now, why did he do that? Well, certainly not because they had done anything that merited it. Repentance does not merit being forgiven. Their act of repentance doesn't change the fact that they had slaughtered literally tens of thousands of innocent people by this time in their history. Maybe hundreds of thousands, we don't know. They slaughtered crazy amounts of people. Repentance doesn't change that reality. So they still don't deserve grace. Why does God give them grace? Because he loves to give grace. That's the reason. Because it thrills the heart of God to forgive people. It thrills the heart of God to give people a second chance. You see that in Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven. say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. God does not rejoice in the destruction of evil people. Actually, we do. We're the ones who tend to rejoice in justice, don't we? You watch a World War II movie and the Nazis get what's coming to them and you say, yes, I love it. Or a couple years ago, caught and killed Osama bin Laden. We're throwing parties in the street because we rejoice that a bad man got what's coming to him, that justice was served. We rejoice in justice and yet we don't realize God doesn't. God doesn't rejoice in that. Now God is good with justice. He loves justice. And yet what does God rejoice in? God rejoices in salvation. He rejoices when that wicked man comes to faith and is forgiven. That is what delights the heart of God. God's desire is not to give people what they deserve. God's desire is to give them love and mercy and compassion. That is what thrills God. We don't have a God in heaven just waiting to push the smite button. We have a God who longs to give us grace. As Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what God wants. He didn't want to give Nineveh what they deserved. He wanted to give them grace because it delights the heart of God to give mercy to those who don't deserve it. God loves grace. And so he gave to Nineveh grace after they repented. He spared them from the punishment that they deserved. But actually, if you'll step back from a moment and think about what we've read in chapter three, you'll realize that God's grace to Nineveh did not begin in verse 10, did it? Well, actually, it began 40 days before that. It began when he sent Jonah. Sending Jonah was itself an act of grace, not judgment, Grace. Think about it this way. I have a, a couple kids. I have twins. Uh, and my twins, uh, my kids, probably like your kids, they tend to disobey on a regular basis. And when they disobey, sometimes they'll do it right in front of me. We're standing there and they do what's wrong and they know it's wrong and I know it's wrong and we'll look at each other. We'll make eye contact and I will say, I will put you in timeout. Now, what is the purpose of those words? Am I simply declaring the future to them? No, I'm warning them. In grace, I am warning them. In grace, I'm giving them a second chance to turn around their behavior. Now, as their father, it it is within my right to punish them immediately. I can do that. That's justice. I could just punish them right then. But instead, in grace, I give them a warning, an opportunity, a second chance. That's what motivated God to send Jonah. That's what those eight words are about You realize if all God wanted was justice for Nineveh, he would have never sent Jonah in the first place. He would have just pushed the smite button and rained fire down on all of them. There would be no book of Jonah if all God wanted was justice. He would have just wiped them out. But God didn't want justice for Nineveh. He wanted grace for Nineveh. So he sent them Jonah to warn them. That prophecy is a warning. It is not a simple declaration of an unchangeable future. Don't know if you realize that, but a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament. Isn't God just declaring the future to someone. It's God warning them. It's God telling them what will happen if conditions remain unchanged. If you keep doing what you're doing, this is what's coming. That's what Jonah's prophecy is about. When it didn't happen, that's not because God lied. It's not because God misled. It's because the prophecy was always meant to be grace. It was meant to be a warning a gracious opportunity for them to turn their behavior around. God was giving grace to Nineveh long before he spared them. He was giving them grace simply by sending them Jonah. Finally, though, when you look at the account, when you look at how fast they repented at the words of Jonah, what you realize is that actually God had been giving them grace for years. Long before Jonah arrived, God was already extending grace to the Ninevites. That's really the only way you can explain how fast they repented. That's crazy. Jonah shows up, a guy they don't know, one guy, and he begins to say these eight simple words and the whole city gets on their knees. Not just the people, but the king. That's really rare in the ancient world. That the king would get on his knees in sackcloth. What's going on? The only way you can explain that is if the whole city was already being prepared for repentance before Jonah arrived. Well, sure enough, we look in the records of the Assyrians. We study Assyrian history. Nineveh was part of the Assyrian kingdom. And we find out that actually God had been doing things in Assyria for quite a few years before Jonah arrived. Jonah came to Nineveh and preached this prophecy to them around 759 BC. That was a period of weakness for Assyria. Before it and after it, they were incredibly strong. But when Jonah showed up, they were not doing well. They had just suffered a number of military defeats, which for the Assyrians was very unusual. They always won, but then they began to lose. They were actually in danger of being invaded when Jonah showed up. And we study the history and find out that there were actually two plagues that God sent upon Assyria, one six years before Jonah, one right before Jonah. And probably worst of all for the Assyrians, a few years before Jonah arrives on June 15th, 763 BC, they witnessed a total eclipse of the sun which is not very meaningful to us, but to them, it meant we're dead. Very rare event. And the Assyrians believe that means we're doomed. And so when Jonah shows up to the city of Nineveh, he is coming to people who are on the edge of their seats, terrified and afraid. They look around and everything is going wrong and they don't know why. They don't know what they have done wrong. They don't know what God they have offended. All they know is all the signs, all the omens point to the fact that you are about to die. They don't know why. They don't know the reason. And then Jonah shows up and gives it to them. Here's why. Instantly they repent. They're on their knees because God had been showing them grace for years before Jonah arrived. Now you pause for a moment. You recognize, you ask yourself, wait a minute. Plagues and military defeats don't sound like grace, but actually to a prideful and violent people, they are. That is grace to prideful and violent people, that God would break them, that God would defeat them, that God would crush them. That's exactly what they needed to be prepared for Jonah's message. If God would have left the Ninevites in power, if they were at the peak of their power, then when Jonah showed up, they would have just killed the dude. That would have been the end of it but God in grace broke them and crushed them so that when Jonah showed up, they were ready. Now, some of you have people in your own lives, relatives, friends, coworkers who are walking in sin, who have absolutely rejected God. They've heard the gospel. They want nothing to do with it. They are rebelling against God. And you wonder, how do I pray for that person? And I think Jonah chapter three tells us it is good to pray that God would break them, that God would crush them. That God would cause their life not to work because that's what people need to come to faith. The worst thing to see is a person who is in rebellion against God and yet enjoying life. That's bad. What you pray is that God would cause the party to come to an end and the pain to begin so that they would be crushed and broken and brought to humility before God so that they're ready to believe the good news of the gospel. God crushed Nineveh and that was grace. He did it because he loved them. Because he wanted to break them of their pride so that they would be ready to hear the gospel, the good news, the prophecy from Jonah and believe. God's limitless grace is the subject of Jonah and especially chapter three. And while we conclude this, while we draw this together as the men go back to prepare communion, let me draw out the lesson from Jonah chapter three. We worship a God of limitless grace. God's limit does not have boundaries. There is not a tank full of X amount of grace with God. God's grace is limitless. It is infinite. It knows no bounds. God's grace is limitless in depth. It can reach down infinitely. It can reach down and save the worst possible sinner. The most evil person on the planet is not outside the reach of God's grace. Guys like John Newton, guys like Adolf Hitler are not beyond the depth of God's grace. He can save the worst sinner on earth. So there is no limit to the depth of God's grace and there is no limit to the breadth of God's grace. It is for all people without exception. God is not just the God of America. His grace is not just for us. His grace is for all people for all nations, for all tribes, for all religious backgrounds, for all political persuasions. His grace is for everyone. God is offering grace to all mankind, calling all people to turn to him in faith. God's grace is limitless and that begs the question, have you received it? Has there been a moment in your life where you have recognized, I cannot earn my way to God. I cannot earn his love. I cannot earn his forgiveness. Is there a moment in your life where you have recognized that's okay because he gives it to me free? He offers me eternal life as a free gift. It's grace. It's not something I deserve. It's never something I will merit. It's a free gift that he's made possible through the death and resurrection of his son. Have you received grace? God won't force grace upon you. He will not force eternal life on you. You must accept it. You must say, yes, God. Yes, I believe that Jesus died for me. Yes, I believe he rose from the dead. Yes, I receive it. I welcome it as a gift, eternal life, forgiveness. I want it. Have you received it? If not, let this be the morning that you say yes to God's gift of grace. For those of us who have received his gift of grace, the question we need to ask ourselves, are we ready, are we willing to share that good news of grace with the Ninevites in our lives? As you've gone through this study of Jonah, Brian has taught you guys some of the background on the Ninevite people that Nahum called Nineveh a city of blood. And about a hundred years before, before Jonah showed up, one of the leaders of Assyria, one of the leaders of Nineveh, a guy named Asher the II, boasted, I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them with their blood. I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors, I cut off and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens, I burned in the fire. The Assyrians rivaled the Nazis when it comes to pure evil. And yet that's the kind of people that God chose to love. That's the kind of people that God chose to extend grace. Are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to extend grace in word and in deed to the Ninevites of your life? To the people who you would really rather just get justice, are you willing to give them grace instead? To that neighbor who just infuriates you? To that coworker who is walking in awful flagrant sin? To that relative who has hurt you deeply in the past? Are you willing to give them grace instead of justice? Because God is. That's what God wants. God doesn't want justice for that person. If they never turn to him, then they'll get justice. But that's not God's desire. God's desire is that they get grace. And he wants us to desire that too. Are you willing to share the message of grace with the Ninevites in your life? This morning, we have the opportunity to celebrate the good news of grace. That's what communion is about. Communion is a a moment for us to remember that this grace, this limitless grace that God gives to us is incredibly costly but not to us. It was costly to God. It cost him everything. It cost him his own son. Jesus died in our place to purchase grace, to make grace possible. That's why you have been forgiven. That's why the world can be forgiven because God's own son was tortured and executed in our place. That's what we celebrate in communion, that Jesus himself paid the infinite price of grace so that we could be forgiven so as the men come forward i want to encourage you to take this time as the elements pass to go to god and to thank him for the grace that he's made possible for you give thanks that god has not given you what you deserve that he did not give you justice but gave you mercy thank god that he sent his own son to pay the price required so that mercy could come to us let's go to god and give him thanks First Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and we had given in thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who loves grace. You didn't have to be. You could be a God who simply gives us justice, who simply gives us what we deserve. It's your right to do that. And yet in grace, you have chosen instead to love us. Sinners who are rebellious against you, you have loved us, and in grace, you have saved us through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus paid the ultimate price so that we could be forgiven thank you that though grace is costly for you it is free for us thank you for the hope that we have because of jesus christ we pray for anyone here who hasn't received that good news who has not received that gift of eternal life please lord help them this morning to understand your love is not something to be earned it is not something they need to work for it is an absolutely free gift a gift purchased by your son who died for their sins and rose from the dead so they could be forgiven. I pray that they would believe that good news this morning and receive your gift. And for those of us who have received your gift, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in us. I pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would break our hearts and help us to love people like you do. I pray that you would transform us into gracious people, that we would have limitless grace like you have limitless grace. I pray, Father, that we would offer and extend grace even to those who seem like Ninevites in our lives. I pray that there would be no one to whom we would withhold the good news of your grace and mercy. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for giving us hope and life through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Now let's end in worship.